Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we will be talking about Sandman issue number nine, Tales in the Sand. Its cover date was September 1989. Again, art by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III, and Robbie Bush's colorist, Ted Klein as letterer. This might actually be my favorite issue so far. I'm just going to lay that out here right at the at the top. You know, if we think about the Sandman as a story about stories, well, here we have that explicit on the page. In this issue, we're going to have a character. We're going to have one character tell another character a story about Dream that may or may not be true, which is going to raise a lot of questions for us to talk about. Uh, and I And I guess we should say, too, that Right. This is a sort of standalone story that serves as a kind of prologue to the Dallas House story arc, which we'll actually get to in the next issue. And and if you're reading along with the first edition uh, collection of this, then there's actually been sort of two standalone issues before getting to the second story arc. And this one I find in kind of contrast to the episode, to the issue before, um, to our prior episode, where Dream is a character who's mopey, but lovable rascal, I guess? I don't know. He's not terrible in issue eight. In issue nine, he doesn't come across very well at all, in my opinion. Absolutely not. And that's going to be one of the questions that we have at the the end here when we're all done, is whether or not this is even really a true story, whether or not this story about Dream actually reflects anything that Dream ever did, or certainly maybe how he behaved while, while doing these, even if the broad outlines of this story are true. But uh, let's not start at the end. And let's start at the beginning. So uh, let's let's get into it. Some tales you tell children. Stories that tell them the history of the tribe. What is good to eat. What is not. Cautionary tales. There are the tales the women tell. In the private tongue, men children are never taught, and older men are too wise to learn. And these tales are not told by men. There are the tales the men tell each other in the men's hut at night. Crude, raucous tales of the lizard who lost his male member. Or of the Malaboyo, the trickster who sold ape dung to King Lion, telling him it was the soul of the moon. There are the tales the whole tribe tells each other, at festivals, at feasts. The story of the rock that jumped, of how fire came, a thousand others. Low tales, high tales, tales that are told and heard many, many times. But one tale is only ever told once. And... That is how Tale in the Sand opens. Uh, this is just some majestic prose, and it's also something of a thesis statement, maybe even a, a mission statement, really for the whole Sandman, right? Which, above all, is a story that celebrates stories. I love this opening. Yeah, it's a really great opening. Uh, in the uh, Sandman Companion by High Bender, there's a excerpt from an interview with Neil Gaiman about whether any he had done any research that had led to him borrowing specific tales or myths for any of these tales uh, mentioned in terms of the lizard who lost his male member, the or the Malibu trickster, or the uh, ape dung uh, that was sold to the king to King Lion, and Neil said, "No, I, I just made them up." So they have kind of the rhythm and match kind of stories that we've heard in various from various places around the world, but in this case. Uh, these specific stories that Neil Gaiman is referencing here are ones that he is wholly made up, um, as is the story that will follow. Right. Something we should say at the top here is that we are in Southern Africa, but it's at some nebulous point in pre-modernity. It's not 
contemporary. This story is not actually taking place in the 1990s. I mean, not the story that the two characters are going to be t- sharing, but but also not that frame story. And so, yeah, Gaiman makes up all of these tales because he's really making up this whole culture. It's a, it's a fantasy culture, right? A, a sort of prehistoric fantasy culture here. And we're going to bear witness to a coming of age ceremony in this culture, a, a ceremony in which a, a man is going to tell a tale to his grandson as part of the process of bringing him into adulthood and, and specifically into the community uh, of men in their village. And the, the two of them wander into the desert and it, it's a two day walk, which is a pretty long walk in the desert. And as the grandfather makes a camp for the night, he instructs his grandson to go find something in the sand. It just says, eh, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. And the thing he's looking for, it turns out, is a a piece of green glass shaped like a heart. And now, of course, right, the the question is, what is this? What is this thing? And the answer to that question is going to be the story, the the tale in the the sand. And of course, it's going to be about dream. So now that the grandfather has the piece of glass shaped like the heart, he tells the story. Um, And he tells the story of a city that spread far and wide. Uh, It was a city built of glass. The city spread out farther than a man could walk in a day. And it was the first place that the first people began. And the first people were of our tribe, the grandfather says. And then he says, this is their secret for, you know, what was. So this is a kind of an origin story in some ways of... The people, but also a story of the transition of why they no longer live in this wonderful glass city. There are a number of interesting things that Gaiman is doing here with this story. I mean, right, there is a real sense. Yeah, this is the story of the very first people, the first human beings who had this civilization that's been destroyed. It's lost to time. We don't know about it, right? We as as moderns don't know that this civilization ever existed, but it did. And we're actually going to see it destroyed here in this story, you know, small spoiler for 20 minutes in the future, I guess. And something that I think Gaiman is playing with there is that the refugees from this city or fleeing from the destruction of the city, perhaps, is is what causes the the diaspora of humans to, to migrate around the globe uh, such that we now live on just about every you know square meter of it. Uh, and I think that's really great. Seeing dream actually at the center of that story of how humans came to spread around the globe is very cool. And there's something else interesting here about the, the glass. It's green in the edition that you and I are really properly reading from, but in the, the omnibus edition where it's touched up, it's actually blue. And this is going to change the, the way that the city looks here on these pages as we're seeing it, where when we see it now, uh, where when we see it in the sort of original coloring, it, the village or the city looks like it's all made of of green glass, right? Every building, the spires, the houses, and so on. Uh, but in the the touched up edition, it's really more of like a, a, a pale blue and doesn't look quite as fantastical to me. And it is a, an interesting effect. Two things struck me about the different colors. The one is the green glass when uh, it is held up to grandfather's eye. And he, you can see his eye kind of distorted through the glass. When it's green instead of blue, it looks more sickly, almost as if it's, you know, corrupted or um, just has not aged well, the, the shard of green glass um, and the effect it has on things around it. But when I see the city in, in it being all green glass, I'm either reminded of jade or I'm reminded of it just looking like it's flourishing with plant life in a way that after spending a couple pages of 
the young man and his grandfather walking through the desert, I'm thinking about a place that is more lush um, and almost like a, a Garden of Eden, if you will. But with the blue, it reminds me more as if it's kind of touching and reaching into the sky, and it's more almost a Tower of Babel imagery. So it is very different imagery going on in my head of whether this is Tower of Babel or Garden of Eden, it's kind of depending a lot on how it's colored, which I think, which I think says a lot about how your color choices can affect things. And I don't know which I prefer. They have very different effects. I think I preferred the green. That's something maybe we can we can talk about when we get to our uh, our favorite panel discussion at the end. But you're right. One of the things that we're told, one of the things the grandfather is telling his grandson here is that back in those days, you know, 10,000 years ago, it was a paradise. It wasn't a desert. And that this city was so massive that it spread out farther than a man could walk in a day. So there is definitely a, a sense that this was a, a lush place. And I, I, I like the idea of thinking of it as something akin to the Garden of Eden. But what really matters about the city is that it's ruled by a queen, and her name was Nada. Yes, that Nada, right? The Nada currently imprisoned in hell because of Dream. And this is going to be the story of how that happened. And the art now is is going to switch from showing us really the, the grandfather and the grandson to showing us Nada and Dream to illustrating the story even as the, the grandfather continues to, to narrate it, even as everything that we're reading is uh, from the voice of the, the grandfather. So Nada, we learn right away, is a, a wise and good ruler. She's also very beautiful, but she hasn't found a husband because who could possibly be good enough for her? But one day, a stranger comes to the city, and he's dressed in black with flames dancing in the blackness of his robe, and his eyes are stars in deep pools of water. This is a description of Dream, of course, right? And we see him now on the page, and we we see him with some of his accoutrements. But he is actually depicted differently here than we saw him uh, from Nada's perspective in A Hope in Hell. I thought that was an interesting change. Yeah, and I'm not quite sure why that is, if it's just that they look different or if it's supposed to betray the fact that the grandfather is telling the story and the grandfather maybe does not has not met Dream or does not know that he's met Dream, because perhaps he's only seen him in his dreams. Um, and so he may not connect that imagery. And also it could be letting us know this is a not entirely reliable narrator, not in that the grandfather is lying, but in that the story and the tale that the grandfather is telling is a tale that was told to him and told to him and told. And so it's, it, it, it maybe does not quite match the actual truth of, of what happened. Uh, one detail I do like though, as you mentioned, is the description of dream has his, um, has flames danced in the blackness of his robe. And there are a couple instances in the middle of the last story arc where we would see that little bit of kind of flame appearing in the back of uh, Dream's cloak or coat, depending on whether he was wearing a cloak or a coat. And I thought that was a nice little touch where I'm like, oh, it, that wasn't I, – I never – you always know that it is intentional when that's done in comics art, but sometimes you wonder, like, is it really intentional? Yeah, this is the first instance that we actually get the flames acknowledged, right, in the text of the story and not just in the, the visual language of the story. And I think I actually like the way it looks on this robe better than I, I liked it uh, on his coat or his cloak at any any point in the, the previous story arc. But I also don't really remember I, – I don't associate – 
flames with his outfit. So I don't know how much longer this is something that continues to be true of him. I think this is an element that actually gets dropped fairly soon after this. I think it is too, but we'll have to see because uh, I, I could just be misremembering. Yeah, we probably just don't remember it. And maybe that's on on theme with uh, the sort of uh, and, and maybe that's on message with the theme of this story about uh, about the way that memory can play with uh, the, the way that things look and the, the details that we remember about stories. So, well, let's let's get into the story that the grandfather is telling here. So, right. Dream has come to the city. He stands quietly. We might even say creepily below Nada's window and she sees him and, and then he just is gone. But this is not enough for Nada because she's in love with him, having just seen him. She is in love. But of course, right, there's a problem. She doesn't know who Dream is or how to find him. And when her subordinates can't locate him, she visits the King of the Birds and asks for his help. The King of the Birds is awesome. He's he's huge. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's supposed to be an elephant bird, which was a, a species that was native to Madagascar before it went extinct about a, a thousand years ago. And the, the King of the Birds asks all the other birds if they've seen this mystery man, Dream, uh, and, and, and none of them have, except the weaver bird. And when the weaver bird tells her story of how she's encountered dream before the, the king of the birds knows that this mystery man is in fact, no man, but he's also no God either. He's something else. And Nada should forget about him. And Nada is dejected at this, but the weaver bird actually has more aid to offer. She says there's a tree that grows on the mountains of the sun and on that tree grow berries of flame and if you eat one of these berries, then you're immediately transported to the side of your true love. And I couldn't help but think when I was reading this this time of how this would shorten my commute home from work. So this seems like a quest <laughs> that I might want to take up as well. But okay, so the, the weaver bird goes and gets a berry of flame from the mountains of the sun. I love these these names, these sort of folklore, folktale, mythology type names. And in the process, she is burnt. And so she turns from a white bird like a dove to a deep brown, which is what uh, many varieties of weaver birds actually look like. So this is a, a kind of just-so story. And it also explains why these people, the descendants of this civilization, let weaver birds live in their villages now. And I just love this aspect of the the fairy story, the, right? The, the uh, idea that there are anthropomorphic animals that you can interact with and that they're going to help you on your hero's quest to to find your your true love right all of this so far feeling a little bit like the orpheus and eurydice story in fact and i just love it yeah it's great um and i love that the birds not only talk but they have their own monarchy they've got a king he's wearing a crown because of course that's how you know he's the bird king and i love the the story within the story of like Okay, I'm telling the story about the destruction, ultimately, of the city um, and the story of Nada and Dream, but I'm also throwing in a bit about, you know, weaver birds and why, you know, we treat them the way we do and also why they have the coloration that they do. And it's it's great to have all of this rolled into this kind of oral history that is being presented. Yeah, there's a kind of a one-two punch here, right? Where the the telling of this story, which is an initiation ritual, right? It's it's making this young man an adult, making him a citizen, right? Making him a part of the adult 
community. So here are the things that he needs to know about that community in order to participate fully in the the operation of it, to really be a citizen of that community. And there are the sort of two important things that we need to know about the origin story. And I like that one of them is really about these birds who make their own nests in the village and whom we very explicitly do not eat, right? Might be one of the few things that we don't eat, given that these people live on an ecosystem on the edge of a desert, which presumably then is itself kind of fragile. And so the message here is that even in the hardest of times, we never eat the weaver birds. And this is why. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's magnificent. This is really well done. But uh, we don't need to dwell on that anymore. So we can get to the story of Nada and Dream now that Nada has a fireberry. And as soon as she eats one, she falls asleep and enters the dreaming. And she sees Cain and Abel fighting. And, and in the background of their fight their ruckus, I guess maybe we'll say. Uh, there's Dream's Palace. And she goes on to the palace and we see the gate, which is awesome. It's got a, a dragon on top and then a griffin and a horse on each side and it's all white. And I wasn't actually sure. I didn't check to see if this mirrors the way that the, the gates of Horn and Ivory are depicted or if this is a, an entirely different gate, that this is really just the entrance to the palace, not the entrance to Dreaming. And I didn't check that either specifically, but from my memory, I believe uh, it shares some similarities, but it, it differs just a little bit. Again, it could be because of the kind of shifting nature of Dream and the way that um, he and his land is depicted. And also it's 10,000 years ago, so things have probably happened between X and Y. Well, I've pulled it up and I'm looking at it now and it has some of the same elements in that it is white and there are dragons. This is what I, I remembered seeing when we talked about this uh, several months ago now, but it does look totally different. And so th this gate that we're looking at here in this issue is, I think, really just the door, the sort of primary door into Dream's Palace where the, the gates of Horn and Ivory are the boundaries of the Dream in itself. So I think there is visually here being a distinction, though, of course, there are all sorts of issues as you say about where the images that we're looking at in this issue even come from, right? Are these objectively true things that the artist, the creator of the Sandman series are wanting us to see, or is what's being illustrated here actually the subjective imagination of this old man and his grandson as they are, are telling and, and listening to this story? And then as Nada goes into the throne room, um, she sees Kakao, uh, the dream lord on his throne and his head was hidden. He had said to her, and he said to her, who are you? Why have you come here? There's something I love about this. He's wearing his helm, um, which is the reason why his head is hidden. He's wearing the helm that he had to recover in preludes and nocturnes. Um, he is wearing his ruby, uh, which we've already discovered the fate of the ruby. Um, and he's lounging in this throne chair in a way that just looks like it's almost a cut and paste of how the uh, aliens um, in Alien, the kind of navigator's uh, body, looks like it's lounging in its navigation pod. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but you're right. There's a real H.R. Geiger vibe here. I mean, the helmet always has had that. But yeah, the the, the throne itself is real weird looking. And the, the, the position that he's in, this lounge position, creates a real strange perspective where the, the bottom half of him, like his legs seem to be 
kind of disproportionately large. I was actually reminded of the uh, the the pose that he strikes in the diner as as he and he's getting ready to transport himself and D into the dreaming so they can have their battle there. And you pointed out that that pose looked a lot like he was caught at the end of like a stutter <laughs> step move. Yeah. This kind of looks like it's the same kind of thing. Like, I, yeah, I like like Dream just is like a really great dancer and he loves to hold themselves in these poses. I, I want that to be true. <laughs> Uh, so Nada announces that she seeks a stranger because she loves the stranger. Flames dance in the blackness of his robe and his eyes are stars in pools of deep water. And uh, then Dream takes off the helmet and says, ha ha, I am he. Right. And, and and so they're in love. But now at this point, right, Nada understands that her love, that Dream, is is one of the endless and she's terrified of this. And she, she wakes up in the, the real world and then Dream is there physically with her. And he wants to know why she fled from him. And she explains that she knows that their love's going to be disastrous. It'll be disastrous for her, disastrous for her people, because love is no part of the dream world. Love belongs to desire, and desire is always cruel. And that's desire with a capital D. This is another one of the endless. We haven't met desire yet, but we will. But Dream is not hearing this excuse, right? He is impressed that she was able to find him. That's something he says has never happened before. I guess he's tried this trick before, but it's not worked out. And so he wants to marry her. He, he wants her to be the queen of his dream world. But even still, Nada is afraid. And so she takes on the form of a gazelle and flees. But then Dream catches her and slays her, except that she isn't actually dead. And this really reminds me of the riddle game in A Hope in Hell. And so Nada has her her human form back now, and she continues to to flee. And there's also then some uncomfortable business here with Nada taking her virginity with a, a sharp rock so that Dream won't want her anymore. But that doesn't work either. He, he catches up to her, and finally she relents, and they make love on a mountaintop overlooking her city. And in the morning, the sun sees the two of them together, and because it is wrong for an endless and immortal to be together, the sun sends a blazing fireball and destroys Nada's city. And when Nada sees this, she says, this is because of what we did, and worse will come if I stay by your side. And so she throws herself off the mountain, and then her spirit is in the forest on the borders of the realm of death. And Dream is there as well, now in his full regalia again, he's got the helmet back on, and he's not happy that she keeps refusing him, keeps running away from him, even into death, that she's choosing death over him. And so he gives her one more chance to be his queen, but if she refuses him again, then he will condemn her soul to eternal pain. There is a lot going on in this part of the story, but the thing here at the end of this bit of narration that really jumps out to me is, is that... This seems harsh and totally disproportionate, right? Yeah, no, it's awful. Um, There is no way to justify any bit of Dream's behavior, even if she is completely wrong and them being together uh, wouldn't cause a problem. The fact that he is going so far as to try to chase her down after she's committed suicide to try to get away is just... um, and we talked in our wrap-up episode of Preludes and Nocturnes about the way that Dream and, and other members of the Endless, but Dream in particular, have some real 
aspects of, of of ancient Greek gods, of classical Greek mythology. And it really feels that way here too, right? We've joked around about actually how lusty Zeus and, and other Greek gods are for mortal women and, and often do some really crazy stuff to get those mortal women and, and just sexually assault them, just actually rape them. And this feels very much like that. I, I'm very much reminded of the story of Daphne and Apollo here, where Apollo sees this mortal woman who he desperately wants, and she doesn't want him, and tries to get away from him. And so she flees and flees, she runs and runs, and eventually is actually even transformed into a tree, the laurel tree, so that she won't have to, to be with him. This feels like that kind of story. And in um, The Annotated Sandman, Leslie Clinger includes a bit from Neil Gaiman's original script um, that notes about the story as a whole, quote, it's the prologue to the second full-length Sandman story, which will take us through to about number 16, which has the working title of A Doll's House, and it kept that working title, obviously. The prologue, insofar as we'll be examining some of the themes raised in this story, particularly that of the Sandman in love or at least his relationship with human beings in the rest of the issues. So the prologue here is supposed to be setting up kind of dreams, kind of bizarre behavior um, and kind of callousness and uncaring towards humans, while at the same time thinking that he loves them, thinking that, you know, he is justified in his actions and not fully understanding or thinking through the ramifications, which we've seen before, the ramifications of how he affects them and how his decisions may impact their, in, in case of Nada and where we see she ends up, her, her freedom, as well as her not being, you know, in pain for 10,000 years. Something that's missing from this story, something we just don't know is how long is this marriage supposed to last, right? Is she going to age at the nor normal pace of a human being? And so she's going to die in, in 40 or 50 years, and then Dream will have to look for another queen? Is he going to make her immortal in some way? Yeah, just no thought to sort of the actual logistics of how this could work. Uh, where are her parents? Does she have siblings? She certainly feels responsible for her people, her subjects, but she's going to be taken from from that right so this also i suppose even actually has a real sense of the uh story of persephone as she is forced to become the the queen of hell against her will and has to make makes an arrangement where she does at least get to spend some part of her life uh, some part of every year above the surface uh you know on the actual earth in the the realm of the living and this is an allegory for why we have seasons but again yeah this is this is the sort of thing that gaiman is is drawing on here these types of of these archetypes from greek mythology are showing up here but there are some other interesting folk tale folklore elements here for one right nada turns into a gazelle um which is not something that humans can do at least not that i'm aware of and also, the sun is personified here. The sun is a person with wants and desires who takes action in the world, like uh, making moral judgments on people and punishing them for it, uh, violently punishing them for it in, in something that seems very much actually like the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. So what do you think this tells us about like the objective veracity of this story? Well... 
As someone who from an early age realized that the sun is a terrible, capricious being that uh, sits in the sky and burns the flesh, um, as someone who burns very easily in the sunlight, uh, this lined up with what I would think would be normal, and I objectively at this point understood the sun to be acting as I expect the sun would. <laughs> However, if one were to think the sun was less anthropomorphic and, you know, act, you know, accidentally learn think that you can trust the sun in some way i don't know if it's just one of those things about you know by the light of day when things are in full vision that's when you can better see um the result of things and if i you know it's unclear to me at this point whether it could be that a comet or something had fallen and destroyed the city or if the city never actually particularly existed and it was just all symbolism for how great it was to have a queen who was wise and whose people then could trust in her wisdom and do what they were told. And once she is not able to provide that guidance to them anymore, then they're not able to maintain this wonderful paradise that is a city. It, uh, uh, there could be a number of things going on there. What are your thoughts on the angry ball of hatred? If we are to think of it as not the deceiver that it is. Yeah. I don't think that the vertigo comics universe, the Sandman comics world, or even just the DC comics universe as a whole has, uh, the sun be an actual person who can do this sort of thing, right? I think we know that that's, that's not going to be an objectively true thing that's happened. But this, the whole point of this story, right, is to initiate this young man into the, the group, into the, the citizenry, the adult community. So he needs to know these things. And this is a story of how things got this way, how, how we got this way. And it's why we live on the edge of this desert, right? And, and, and so there is some element of this that, that seems like, well, the sun destroyed our previously great civilization as a kind of allegory or metaphor of, of some sort for, you know, a long process of desertification or some other kind of natural disaster or something like that. But that that's the way that the, the, it is now remembered 10,000 years later in this real active way that it was that the sun destroyed our civilization in this moment uh, because of a, a transgression, because of something uh, that someone who was a member, in fact, even the leader of this community did. Though I'm not quite sure what the moral lesson is there that the grandson is supposed to be learning from this tale, if that's the, you know, if that's really the impetus for it. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the message is either, Glenn. Um, but yeah, given the how terrible the sun can be if you are caught in it, in the desert particularly, and the fact that you can probably see its effects, that the sun, the grandfather and grandson may have seen like the way that the sun can affect water that's near where they are, and they may desire shade to cool down, then it's a matter of getting away from the sun and its direct sight at times. Um, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure, again, what the motivation and the frustration the sun would be for what has actually transpired here. And we aren't going to get any more about that in this story, though I think we'll, we'll take it up again at the end once we have more information here and can, can really bring this part of the conversation home. So so Nada has been threatened, Dream is threatening her, we should say, with uh, uh, eternal pain, condemning her soul to eternal pain in hell. But even with this threat, which is basically the worst thing that can happen to someone, right? She still says no, and she gives a, a really great speech, so I just want to read it. How can I be your queen? 
for my people are no more because of what I did, and my city is a waste. If I were to stay with you, still darker things would happen. Mortals do not marry the endless, my love. Now leave me to the realm of Grandmother Death, Dream Lord, and forget me. And and then she walks down the sunless road and into the realm of death. And even still, Dream asks her one more time, and she refuses again for the, the fourth time. And now the art switches back to the, the grandfather and the, the grandson in the desert, with the grandson asking, what happened? What did she say this last time? Of course, she said no, right? What else could she say? And now it's time for the grandson to throw the shard of glass back into the desert, where someday maybe his own son or his own grandson will find that same shard when it's his turn to participate in this ritual. And finally, here on the the last couple of pages, we return to the voice of the narrator, the, the voice that began this issue, who tells us that there is another version of this tale, and that's the tale that the women tell each other. And in that version of the tale, maybe things happen differently. And this also, right, this emphasizes this huge question about the objective veracity of what we've just read, right? Did these events really happen? Is this really why Nada is in hell? Which is a thing that we have seen to be objectively true. Or is this just a legend that these people have that may have some of the background of the characters right, but not the, the plot? And I think it would also be fun to speculate on how the story the women tell might be a little bit different. I'm left wondering somewhat, what are the differences between the tale that the women tell versus the men tell? Are they more sympathetic to dream in some way? Or is he even more vile and terrible in that? Does he, does he forcibly take Nada to begin with and force her to love him versus her seeking him actively out? I'm not quite sure. What What's some of your kind of thoughts on how the story could be different? Even though we just said it's a little bit difficult to see what sort of moral or lesson there there is in this story, maybe the reason that this is the story that the men tell each other, it's a story that older men tell to really adolescent boys, right? Boys who are becoming, who are becoming sexually mature. This is a story about don't sexually assault women with that you you can't just chase after women and demand that they marry you if you do that bad things will happen and in fact the whole community will suffer as a result of that kind of behavior so don't do that and so perhaps this behavior of dreams that we're pretty uncomfortable with that we certainly find totally unsympathetic to the title character of this series that we're reading uh, is is really is really just a moral lesson for this young man, this adolescent boy, and that maybe the the story the women tell has uh, advice for adolescent girls, for young women, but it's going to be a, a wholly different type of advice and may tell a completely different story of the relationship between Dream and Nada, a story that will help them become adults in their community and help them learn how to interact with, with men. But I don't know what that would look like. Yeah, um, and then we're kind of left wondering somewhat how it could be different. But at the very least, what we get, I think, from the end is, again, what the grandfather's telling the grandson is it's a tale. And it's not that he's unaware that it, it's a tale and there's an importance to telling it and there are many truths within it, within it. But it's not necessarily that what is being told is the factual, you know, TikTok 
second-by-second account of what actually happened. That's not the purpose of it, which I think is shows kind of wisdom in the way that these kinds of uh, folk tales are, are shared and told. It's not doesn't matter that it isn't specifically what happened. It's the lessons that you need to get from this tale, and it's the understanding of kind of the history of the past as well as, as you indicate, lessons about how you appropriately can interact with members of the opposite sex and also respect weaver birds. <laughs> I will say that this just doesn't ring true for me either with the conversation that they have in A Hope in Hell where Dream says, I still love you, even though it's been 10,000 years, but I don't forgive you. I haven't forgiven you yet. I mean, this just seems totally disproportionate. This is this is a story of uh, a, a man catching a glimpse of a, a woman he finds very beautiful, he's sexually attracted to, and ba- asking her on a date and she says no, and then he is mad at her about this for 10,000 years. That seems uh, a bit much. So I don't think that this can actually be the thing that was the impetus for Nada being imprisoned in hell for 10,000 years and for Dream to still be angry about this. I, I still feel like that story has to be something different. It has to be something bigger. They have to have had a real relationship and that whatever happened to them has to have been something that was really devastating to to Dream. And I don't know if we ever find out what that story actually is. Yeah, I don't recall how much we do find out. I know we find out some more, but I don't recall how much more. So we'll have to look for that as we move forward. But, uh, but yeah, it's not entirely clear in the context of the tale Again, you know, it mentions that they spent the evening together and then they woke up the next day and the sun, it may not have been literally a next day. It might have been that lots of time passed where they were kind of together as a couple. Um, and then at some point she decided or something caught happened that caused her to decide like, no, this is not right versus one evening of them being together. Certainly, I would buy that a lot more. That would make a lot more sense. Something that's only just occurring to me now that we're getting this story. You know, we talked a lot uh, as we were wrapping up and, and, and coming to the end of the Preludes and Nocturnes story, that that story arc is very much about Dream's relationship with vengeance and mercy, about where he is on a, on a sort of spectrum between vengeance and mercy. And in the beginning, he is vengeful at his captors. He does hold a grudge for a whole human lifetime and and does some pretty awful things, some, some really horrifying things to, to people as a result of that. But he has the same opportunity at the end with John D, and he decides not to do that. And in the middle of that arc, he encounters Nada, who we didn't really talk about in, in this sense of that arc or as being a part of that arc. But if Dream has truly moved from vengeance to, to mercy because of his experience with being imprisoned and getting his stuff back, why doesn't he go back to hell and actually forgive Nada and, and let her out, uh, perhaps on the, the uh, imaginary uh, 25th page of the, the Sound of Her Wings or something like that? Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how um, Sandman may continue to deal with people, humans and others from his past. But this, uh, again, we, we certainly see a very different way that he interacts with all of the humans and his understanding about his effect on them um, and his 
whether he takes responsibility for his actions. If we were to take this tale as objectively true as it's been told here, then it is... <laughs> it makes Sandman seem all the worse for the fact that when we saw him in hell talking to Nada, he thought it was Nada who somehow betrayed him when all she did was not want to be with him. That's not the story that we have here at all is, is one of betrayal. If anything, it's he who has betrayed her for not respecting her, you know, decisions. So, well, I think that's really all we can say about this story at this point. I am excited to to see if we are going to learn more about Nada later in the series. And I'm really excited to get to continue seeing how how Dream, uh, this eternal, this endless being, this, this anthropomorphization of uh, an abstract concept uh, deals with actual human beings, how he interacts with them as we get into the doll's house. But uh, let's talk about the cover here. I think there are going to be some interesting things to say because there are at least three different versions of this cover that we're going to need to talk about. But let's just start with our normal cover conversation by talking about the cover as it exists in the volume of the doll's house that we're reading from, which I think is probably the one that most people reading along with us will also be reading from. And then we can talk about the, the other versions. Right, and I think it'll be good to, more so than we usually do, provide a little bit of description about some of the details that we see. So in the collection that I'm looking at, and I believe you're looking at a similar one, um, we have Dream on the left, um, and we have kind of his face and his head, and he looks kind of sad and sorrowful, and maybe even like he's almost got a black eye, um, and his hands are very visible, um, but then his cloak descends into some kind of a character script, not one I particularly recognize. Um, there, it looks like there's some other fonts and stuff there. There's some hearts and stuff in there, um, among other things. Um, and there's some patterns similar to the flames that are on his black robe that we see in the issue near the bottom of his robe. And his hair is kind of this uh, giant kind of mess in the wind that uh, stretches far above him for feet and feet. And the right-hand side, then, we have a, a woman, a very beautiful woman who's likely Nada, um, wearing a beautiful dress with kind of similar patterns, but with a bunch of bright colors attached to it. Um, and she has bouncing in her head what could be a jug, but to me very much reminds me of almost an ornament on a Christmas tree because it's got a little silver kind of stopper thing on the top or it looks like, uh, you know, the silver part above a Christmas tree ball. And then there are branches behind her. So it, it very much reminds me of that, um, which to me talks about the idea of her being maybe an ornamentation for him in this particular version of the cover, which is kind of a, you know, dehumanizing way for perhaps the way he is viewing her as something that he can own, um, and that should not refuse being with her. And then in the middle of the panel, there is, um, a beautiful scenery of kind of, uh, maybe a, grasslands uh, with some trees in the background and the outline of a bird. It could be um, a raven, but I think it's probably a weaver bird outline in kind of black. And then there is a slight maybe crescent of a moon hidden within it. And then it's a very cloudy sky and the sun is either setting or rising um, as well. Yeah, this is definitely the, the weaver bird. I, I 
fortunate to be married to a very serious bird enthusiast. And so uh, she helped me out with here and said, yes, that is absolutely the profile of a weaver bird. And of course, right, the weaver bird important in this story, a huge element in the story. So that's going to make sense. And this landscape behind is, is a, it's an African savanna. And, and it's the iconic umbrella thorn acacia trees in the background that um, I, I'm not quite sure how I would actually describe what they look like other than to say, I guess, that they have kind of a, a flat top of very sort of broad, flat uh, canopy. And it's, it is really iconic. And I think this is a really beautiful uh, nature nature landscape painting with the the setting or rising sun and then this storm cloud above it it's not really just dark skies i mean i think it's really just a a, a storm cloud it almost looks like the sort of cloud that we would have associated with uh tornado weather uh in our uh, our native chicago land and i find this absolutely stunning i i wonder if dave mckean actually had a sort of broader a sort of wider version of this that uh that one can can get because that would definitely be some wall art that i like well, and and you would not be alone in that, Glenn, because uh, in uh, Dave McKeon's The Collected Sandman Dust Covers collection, uh, there's a quote from Neil Gaiman in which he mentions that this, this is, quote, this is my painting. It hangs on my stairs. I own it more or less by default. Dave offered me any one of the first nine paintings, and this was the one least likely to collapse, rust, dissolve, or fall off the wall, and the one Dave was happiest to see go away, which I... I, I don't know quite why Dave was happiest to see it go away, but um, it, it's apparently the one that is hanging in uh, Neil Gaiman's house, or at least it was at the time that he uh, had made that quote um, for the collection of the dust covers. So it, it is a beautiful collection of colors um, going on and a beautiful landscape. And I really like also what's going on on both the left and right panels. Well, this sounds like the beginning of our own heist story in which we break into Neil Gaiman's home to, to steal a copy of this. Uh, there, I, I do want to say something else about what's going on on the sides with the two figures who've kind of replaced what was going on in Preludes and Nocturnes where we had, uh, you know, shelves or sort of cubby holes with objects in them. Now we've got two figures on the, on the side of a central image. You, you talked about the, the writing that is on their clothing. It's the same style of writing. It's, it's totally imaginary, but it's meant to look a little bit like some kind of blend of hieroglyphics and cuneiform, right? This is Dave McKean imagining what uh, an even older system of writing would look like, right? What if he's imagining what if our our understanding that writing was something that developed in Egypt and developed in Mesopotamia uh, roughly 5,000 years ago? What if that's not true? There's a, another writing system uh, in this uh, this prehistoric civilization, this unknown prehistoric civilization 10,000 years ago. What might their writing look like? I think it's very cool looking. But something that I think is actually important here is that they each of them, they have its different it, it's not the same text. So whatever this is, it's telling some different type of story, but they each of them have the sun on their costume. They each have the sun. They each have uh, look what appears to be likely be the weaver bird or some other bird. There, Yeah, there are a number of things that are both present, and they're both present around the same parts uh, as if you had read the narrative from top to bottom or from bottom to top, then it's around the same kind of beats that you'd expect to see it. So yeah, I think that very much it's, it's a depiction of there are the, at least two different versions of the same story that is being told in the script on, um, on either side. 
But as we said, there are different versions of this cover. So in the the Sandman omnibus with the the touched up art, there's a slightly different cover. There is. Uh, in it, the the figures are reversed left to right. So we have Nada on the left. We have uh, Dream on the right. Uh, all of the color has been taken out of uh, Nada's side. Uh, the tree branches, um, as I thought they were on the top of her panel, are gone. And, and the the thing resting on her head looks a lot more like a jug to hold water or some other liquid. It no longer looks to me like an ornament. Um, she's saturated with color and very much kind of... Um, She's depicted a lot kind of more in shadow, um, as if you can't really see her, or maybe she's not there anymore. It's kind of more of a memory figment. Um, and the script is more a script uh, on either side of bodies of people, um, as if the story is being told more about people moving or taking actions and looking less like it's cuneiform or some other kind of um, ancient script. And the central panel, um, unfortunately, those those beautiful trees are gone. It looks like uh, it's the photograph of the sun either setting or rising, uh, with a little bit of mountains in the back. Um, we still see, you know, the savannah here. Uh, the bird appears like it's flying a little higher, and there's a much deeper blue to the clouds and less of a storm cloud look than there is in the um, other version. Is there anything else you pick up? I think what I would say to describe the difference in the, the central image is that the, the first one that we talked about is the weaver bird in Africa. And the version in the omnibus edition is the weaver bird at the mountains of the sun. I think there's, it's a totally different landscape. And I'm really wondering if you do have in any of your vast amounts of supplementary material that you've got in, uh, in your studio is, is there any information about why there are these two different versions of this cover? Sadly, I didn't find anything. <laughs> so um, I did not check the internet. Uh, so perhaps there is an answer somewhere. But uh, in the volumes that I have and in the annotated Sandman and the Sandman Companion and in the, in the books themselves, I don't see a particular reference as to why in this case it's such a difference. Because it's not just the coloration being different, which is the normally the main difference between the omnibus and the other collected versions, because there's whole bits of art that are very different. Even Dream's pose, um, it's somewhat similar, but it's it looks like a completely different kind of art. He looks a little bit more like he's wounded in the omnibus, um, and less like he's sad. And instead of his hair looking like it's just kind of a strung out kind of mess of... of of wovenness kind of above him. It looks more like smoke that is drifting off. Um, I like both of them a lot. I don't know which one I actually like more, but, um, but yeah, I haven't found anything as to the reason why. So, uh, listeners, if you are aware of, um, the story of why there are two, um, or are able to better find that than we can, we'd appreciate it if you'd share that on the forums. But Glenn, do you have a preference between these two versions? I think I prefer the original version so far, though that might change my mind. And, and this will actually be fun. It kind of gives us an extra cover to, to choose from uh, when we do our wrap up for the doll's house and are having to pick one. And I'm also curious as to, to whether or not this is going to turn out to be true of all the issues in the doll house, that the covers have been, uh, all of them have been perhaps redone in the omnibus edition. I guess we'll find out next month. Uh, I gave a kind of wishy-washy answer there, Brent, but do you have a particular favorite? 
I, I don't. I don't. Although I do like your note that the one in the omnibus perhaps is the weaver bird um, over the plains of the fire of the sun. Now that I'm seeing that and I'm seeing that grass is to actually be flames. Um, I really kind of like that vision. Um, I do like <laughs> the smallest parts of each is um, what separates the three panels. And in the regular, there's just a black line. Um, that you don't even particularly notice. Uh, but there's a wonderful kind of um, metal band of almost like a, a copper kind of strip between all the uh, between panels, um, among the panels. Um, and I kind of like that extra excuse to, to bring in a little extra color. But it maybe wouldn't be necessary if um, you have more color, at least in not as panel, which you do in the original. So I, I can't tell. I think I prefer, I, I will say this. Actually, I think I maybe do have a preference. Maybe I'm coming to it. Um, I think I, I am more bothered by the idea in the original, what we're calling the original of what appears to me that the jug has made her into almost a Christmas tree ornament for Nada, <laughs> where it kind of devalues her as a person. It may be more from dreams perspective versus she seems more elusive, but also less ornamental, um, literally, um, in the omnibus edition where it, it, it very clearly is that she is, has some kind of a, um, pottery on her head that is not purely a decorative thing all right well maybe we should we should take the best of both worlds and and uh take the the central image from the uh, the original and the frame from the, the the newer version and and put them together i think we can leave the the cover behind and let's talk about the meaning of the title tales in the sand uh this one strikes me as fairly obvious i don't know how much time we'll need to spend on this but what do you make of this brent well, there's a couple things. I think literally we've got the tales in the sand being that they are walking in the sand and they're telling tales there. And also that the nature of kind of oral history tales is they are told and then it's only in the hearer's mind that they remember it. There's not a written script where it's kept. But also I think the other side of this is it's the tales that are defining Sandman as a character. And so it's the tales in Sandman, in his story and himself, in his past. This is one of the few instances we have so far of getting a glimpse of what it was like before he was imprisoned, thousands of years so. Um, so, what, but what do you think of the title? Do you like it? I do like the title, and I do think it works on all three of these levels, as you suggest, right? That there's the literal sand of the desert, there's the figurative sand of the Sandman, but then also this idea of sand in an hourglass, so that's standing in for time, that these are, are tales in time, that this is uh, a, a, a tale that is is meant to be telling a story from 10,000 years ago, at least 10,000 years ago of, of our, from our present, perhaps less time has actually passed, I suppose, for uh, for the grandfather and the grandson, but nonetheless, that this is a a story from from deep time that is a, a legend from the past. It, it is it is a, a good story working on a kind of a triple entendre there. So, Glenn, do you have a favorite panel from this issue? I do. I really like the art in this issue. I, I like it. I mean, I really like it a lot. Uh, there are no page numbers in either version of the issue that I've read in the Omnibus or the the original uh, hardcover edition here. But my favorite panel is the first time that we see Nada. 
And uncharacteristically for me, this is not a big panel. It's just a, a corner square, but it gives us a, a sense of what this speculative fiction city is like. Nada sleeps in a room at the, the top of a tall spire. She has a balcony where she greets birds like she's Mary Poppins. And there's also something of a, a garden up there. And we can see even below her as she's standing on the, the balcony talking to a bird. We can see below her the, the tops of other spires, which I think gives a real sense, a real feel, both of the height of her spire and also the expanse of the city. So it, it lets us see what this cityscape is, is like. So I guess guess what I'm saying is that it looks like a really nice place to live. It looks like a great place to live. Um, and... Yeah, it's it's almost a very Disney princess thing where she is talking to the birds as they greet her in the morning and one is resting on her hand even. And in the two different versions, there's a little different differences in the color of her dress. It's a little bit more of a blue in the uh, what we're calling the original version. And the omnibus, as you mentioned, the city itself goes from a shade of green to a shade of blue. And so instead of her having a blue dress, it's a little bit more of a um, kind of a... A, a red with a little bit of almost an orange to it. Um, but either way, um, it's just a fantastic image of a, a woman who is kind of very happy and seemingly content and uh, standing above the world um, that stretches out amongst her, her kingdom. Um, that does seem like a great place to live. All right, Brett. Well, what was your favorite panel? My favorite panel is two pages before that, um, and it's uh, just after the grandson finds the heart-shaped piece of glass, and the grandfather holds it up to his eye, and there's this great panel in which you can see his face, um, and on the one side, you're seeing his uh, eye, his left eye, through the heart-shaped piece of glass, and you're seeing the right eye not through it, and there's a lot of distortion that comes in. And I like what that says about kind of the distortion that you're getting when it comes to telling tales from different perspectives and also the distortion perhaps that is caused by the effects here of kind of desire and, and, you know, the damage that is done. And particularly in the version where, where the glass shard is green, uh, it almost, it makes the grandfather's eye almost look very sickly. Um, it's, 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 the shaping isn't right, and it's not just that it gets bigger, it's that it gets swollen in strange ways um, and distorted in that way, but it also makes everything kind of look sickly green. So it almost reminds me of kind of the sick distortions that are caused by Dream not appropriately understanding how he interacts with his emotions and his um, his envy and his jealousy here. I just really love the decision that was made here uh, by Mike Jernberg and Malcolm J Jones III, even putting aside the coloring, just the decision to distort the grandfather's eye just so when the glass comes up to it. Um, and that the glass is, you know, allows you to see a different version or it causes a distortion. It's There's kind of different ways to look at that. But, uh, but I really like that image. But there are a lot of great images. Glenn, you mentioned one. There's another one that neither of us chose, but I think is worth mentioning. It's, it's not a specific panel, but a number of panels, which is where Nada is on the um, outskirts of uh, – death's uh land and there's she's still very much her but you can kind of see the outline of her skeleton through her uh flesh 
And at times it almost looks as if, you know, maybe her skin is kind of painted differently. It depends on whether which coloration you're looking at here. But either way, it's kind of a it's, it's a very different as to how she looks, which I think it allows you to keep seeing Nada. And it doesn't just be like, oh, well, now she's just a moving skeleton. But it's it it's kind of an eerie, but not necessarily painful way to look at her. Yeah, the art the art style really changes when they get to the outskirts of hell. Just in this kind of two page spread, even even dream looks different. I, I don't have enough of the. I I don't have a good enough vocabulary for talking about art to really describe how it changes. But it it the the it feels to me like it's less fine. Uh, like you can see the brush strokes that it's almost done with a, a heavier hand. And I really like that element of it, right? And and I guess brushstroke's not quite right because it's actually all being done with pen and pencil, I suppose. But it has that, it, it just feels heavier and feels rougher the way the world looks here on the outskirts of the realm of death. It's, it's really well done. A lot of great artistic choices in this issue. Well, I really enjoyed this issue. I'm looking forward to seeing where the story is going to go from here. But that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Tales in the Sand. I think we posed a lot of questions uh, over the course of this episode that we would love to have you weigh in on. But I think we also had a sort of implicit call for some fan fiction. If you would like to write the women's version of this story, we would love to read it. Or even, say, the Weaver Bird's version of the story. <laughs> yes, right. I think the Weaver Bird has been uh, mal- much maligned by this story and uh, and uh, should get the truth out there. Uh, next time, we will be continuing our read of the Doll's House uh, collection by reading the issue entitled The Doll's House, issue number 10 of Sandman. But until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>